episode 53, Blue Jacket. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an April 23rd, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Night skies finish last. In the future Farmers of America, blue corduroy is the fabric of success. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine a corduroy jacket worn by Wes Jackson. This former FFA member went on to receive a PhD in genetics and founded an internationally recognized biogenetics research center near Salina, Kansas. In 1992, he received a genius award proving that organized farm kids sporting the iconic blue jackets are more than just good cattle judges. White. William White. That's right. This week, we connect a swab editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the British super spy James Bond when we play Six Degrees of William Alla White. Was White an amateur metallurgist obsessed with gold? Or did he once consider moving the Emporia Gazette office inside a hollowed-out volcano? But first, Blue Jacket. Good afternoon, Blair. Good afternoon. Today we're going to talk about a uh, boy's blue corduroy jacket that has become sort of an icon of a fairly substantial youth organization, the Future Farmers of America, or FFA. Yes. It's a hip-length jacket, plain jacket, and it's got patches on the front, some gold lettering on the back that read Seaman Chapter, Topeka, Kansas. And it has nothing to do with the Navy. Um the jacket was actually originally worn worn by a man named Wes Jackson when he was a member of the FFA in the 1950s. And we'll talk about Jackson in a minute. But first, can you tell us a little bit about the FFA and, and how it began? Well, what the FFA is is a high school organization that encourages students to uh, learn more about rural and farming uh they're rural. They're rural. Yeah, I'm stuck already. The rural and farming background, essentially, and encourage them them to develop as leaders, uh, develops personal growth, and hopefully encourages them in a long career in agriculture. I think I finally stumbled through that all right. Uh, <laughs> when, when did it begin? It began in 1928 in Kansas City. It was the Missouri side of the line, unfortunately, but it was in Kansas City, uh, 28. Uh, they had a long history with Kansas City, actually, that they always met in KC, and one of the things that they always talked about was welcoming the Blue Jackets back to Kansas City until they decided that they would move the conference around the country a little bit. Blue Jackets referencing the kids of the the FFA themselves wearing the Blue Jackets. Well, starting in 1933, members of the FFA began wearing uh, these blue corduroy jackets. Where did the jacket concept originate, and do members still wear them today? I'm not entirely sure about the concept. I was trying to find that out yet, but I, I, I was not having much luck with that one. Uh, the jacket itself is still very much around. I understand that the color is just slightly different. I think they've gone from one shade of blue to another, and the gold isn't quite what it used to be. But it still essentially is the same thing. It's, it represents the organization and the accomplishments of who the, the kids that are wearing those jackets. 
Do you think? Do you have any idea? Has the design of the jacket changed much? Because I've seen people wearing them, and their jackets today pretty much look exactly like this one from the 1950s. They they do look pretty much the same. Uh, I have seen on the internet some indication that there's some slight differences, but boy, they're very slight. <laughs> Uh, I think I even saw one that was actually a different color than blue, which must have been sort of, I think it was some sort of honorary thing that they came up with was for some person. But uh, no, it stayed pretty constant in including a dress code for the that, which indicates what color slacks or skirt you should be wearing. Uh, not you personally as far as the skirt, but... Uh, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because it's, I mean, it's a pretty, they have some fairly strict dress codes. Yes, they do. And uh, it's, a, it's a very standardized uniform that these kids have to wear. Yeah. Not cult like exactly, but it's good. <laughs> so the FFA, it wasn't like a spinoff of a bigger organization at any point. No, I don't think it is. Uh, not even 4-H or anything like that. It is its own organization and always has been. Okay. And a very good one, actually. Does the jacket indicate any status within the organization? Does the jacket itself, or is there patches on the jacket, like rank? I, I think it sort of gains some status depending on what the student does. Uh, just looking at Wes's jacket, I believe the S is for Seaman High School. It looks like he lettered, actually. He got a letter for it, which I don't think is standard on all jackets. Uh, but it also indicates his term as vice president and president of the uh, Seaman High School chapter of the FFA. So, and I think there are also some medals that can be that are offered up as well that can be worn on the jacket as well. Some claim that there is kind of a stigma, um, a stigma of hick or country bumpkin that is associated with members of the FFA. Um, that's just what some say. That's not what I say. I was going to say, I wish you would not get into this. It's just, you think you had learned something from calling the chainsaw artist a homeless guy. <laughs> I'm going to tick off some FFA members by saying that. Um, in your opinion, Blair, why is why does the stigma exist? Oh, I don't know if it's actually that big a stigma. I, I suspect that there, among some people, they will call anything rural, uh, hick or or bumpkin, uh, regardless of what it is, and that's always unfortunate in some way. Sometimes it might be well <laughs> be actually uh, something that is true, but for the most part, no. They're the exceptions rather than the rule. I think it's jealousy over the corduroy jacket. Yes, it's, well, <laughs> well, that's a statement that I'm sure is going to get you into trouble, but that's, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> As I said, this jacket belonged to Sharon Wesley Jackson, and that is a man, and he goes by yes, West Wes Jackson, Jackson now. Um, who is West Jackson, and how, how extensive was his involvement in the FFA? Well, as I said a little while ago, it's got his vice president and presidential terms sewn in on the jacket. Oh, that's of his it? local chapter? Of his local chapter. He went to Seaman High School here in Topeka and into the FFA chapter there. Uh, so, yes, he was rather deeply involved in it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Wes has gone on to do, he's, he's done some remarkable things. He... Uh, became a professor and uh, chaired one of the first uh, environmental studies programs in the country out in California, uh, California State at Sacramento. Uh, But what's probably more important is that he came home to Kansas and out at Salina, he founded the Land Institute, uh, which gets quite a bit of publicity for what it does. It looks and experiments with ways to improve farming methods, particularly in making them more ecologically friendly 
And you can't speak highly enough of that in Kansas where we've had the Dust Bowl and other problems with farming that need to be addressed. Um, Do you know of any specific successes that he had um, at the Land Institute? Well, I know one thing that he's been working on heavily is developing, developing, (laughs) I can't talk today, developing perennial grains, which are grains that come each year, but their root system gets deeper and deeper into the ground. And that holds the soil in place and helps stop erosion. And that is a very important thing for starters. So that's one very big thing that he's been working on. And And the Land Institute, that's kind of a uh, it's research center slash experiment station. Um, And it's um, one of those places he's a big advocate of like you know, like a zero carbon footprint, right? It's almost like a totally self-sufficient. You get it, yeah, something like that, yes. Research center. Well, Smithsonian Magazine actually recognized Jackson as an innovator of our time. But more importantly, Jackson was awarded the prestigious MacArthur Foundation Grant. Yes. Uh, What is that grant more commonly known as? And do you think Jackson gets a certain degree of retribution for all those who tried to stigmatize (laughs) his FFA membership? You're just going to stick with this hick and bumpkin thing, aren't you? (laughs) Well, you got an angle you got to work it. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, yes. Well, the MacArthur Grant is also known as the Genius Grants. And that's really impressive because I forget how much money is attached to it, but the idea of the Genius Grants is that it recognized people that can take this money and just not have to worry about finding money to survive on, and they can go about and do work in different ways. And in his case, this helps him uh, work a little bit further with the Land Institute and Trying to think of another good example. Uh, I can't think of the director's name offhand, but there's a movie director who received a genius grant who is always searching for funding for his films. And uh, this helps helped him a few years ago in being able to survive a little bit without having to worry about an income. So it's the type of grant, like, it's not just specifically for a project. It's basically, you know, the MacArthur Foundation saying, we think you're so successful. Yes. Whatever you do is going to be good stuff. We just want to support you and make you able to do it. It's very good like that. It doesn't really mean that you do anything specific. It just go about your work and try to be, do something that is of value um, to the public. Have you ever met Wes Jackson? I've not met him, no. Uh, so I, I've uh, not had that opportunity. Have you ever been to the Land Institute? I haven't been there either. <laughs> but you've seen his corduroy jacket. I have jacket. seen his corduroy jacket, yes. It's safe here in the museum where it's much appreciated. The FFA has uh, some impressive alumnus, such as uh, President Jimmy Carter, to name an example. In that vein, you and I are going to play what I like to call the FFA name game. Okay. I'll give you the person's name. Actually, I was going to call it FFA or Canadian, but I decided to call it the (laughs) FFA name game. (laughs) I'll give you a person's name, and you tell me if that person was ever a member of the FFA. Okay. Like I said, I saw the alumni list a long time ago, but I didn't recheck this again. So. (laughs) Okay. First up, Sam Brownback, the U.S. Senator from Kansas. I would believe that he was a member of the FFA since he came from Parker, Kansas, which is a very rural area. Uh, I would be surprised if he wasn't a member of the FFA. Um, He was, in fact, a member of the FFA, and I think he reached some pretty high levels in the FFA leadership. He may have been the national president at one time. Oh, okay. Even better. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Next up. Closest he got to the presidency is no. Well, don't say that. (laughs) Next up is Larry Hagman. 
actor that played J.R. Ewing on the television series Dallas? Uh, I would be surprised if he was a member because uh, I remember that his mother was Mary Martin, who was an actress, both on Broadway and the movies. And I can't imagine that he would be an FFA member. I don't think he'd be. A, I don't think he was on the farm. You are correct. He was not an FFA member. Okay. <laughs> All right. We're on a roll here. Yes. The third is Jim Davis, creator of the Garfield comic. And not to be confused with Jim Davis, who is the actor that played Chuck Ewing on Dallas. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> not the same guy. Yeah, not the same guy. Um. That is a little bit tougher. I, I'm going to say that he probably was because just looking at Garfield, he always makes references to John coming from a farm and occasionally you meet his parents and his brother. And I, I suspect they probably had a lasagna farm in Indiana somewhere. Well, you are correct. He actually was in the uh, FFA. He had a lasagna farm? <laughs> not, not about that part. But uh, that's pretty good, Blair. I'm impressed. Okay, five, or, oh, two more. Two more. Um, now we have Al Gore, former vice president of the United States, and pretty in tune wow. with the environment. Yeah, he is pretty in tune with the environment, but well, I think the Gore family has a farm in Tennessee, but I also remember that his father was a U.S. senator as well, so I think he grew up in Washington, D.C. for the most part and attended uh, private schools around the District of Columbia. So I'm going to say he probably was not a member of the FFA. He was not a member of yeah, the FFA. You are yeah. correct. He was a member of the of 4-H. 4-H. Okay. <laughs> but not FFA. Which would make sense because well, 4-H can yeah, be a little less. It yeah. doesn't have to be um, farm-based. Yeah. That still surprises me a little bit, though, because, like I said, I think he grew up mostly in the District of Columbia, which isn't exactly what we think of as a farming area. No. no. Well, you know, Al Gore's full of surprises. Yes, that's <laughs> uh, Willie Nelson, country music singer and songwriter. Uh, I don't even have a good joke for this one. Uh I'm not even sure where Willie is from exactly. I imagine he's from a rural area, but uh, uh, well, we'll say that he was a member. I don't have any reason, one way or the other, as to he was. He was a member yeah. of FFA, specializing in growing some very unique crops. Uh, yes. Did the income tax people have anything to say about that? <laughs> I don't know. All right, Blair. Well, thanks for playing the FFA name game, and thanks for telling us about. Um, Mr. Jackson's jacket. You're quite welcome, and we apologize to any FFA members we've offended today. <laughs> yeah, sorry, FFA member. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Alla White. And joining me today, as usual, is Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin. Hello. And Assistant Registrar, Nikayla Zimmerman. Howdy. And uh, as you can tell by the music that you just heard, uh, we're going to be uh, uh, doing some work with James Bond today. And Sleuthing. We'll, and we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but first, we have a little, we have a listener solution to the challenge from last week, um, which was to connect William Allen White to Bon Jovi. Um, Rebecca, you want to give us that solution? Sure. Um, this is from Teresa, who lives in Topeka. And I apologize in advance for my mispronunciation of any names in the solution, Teresa. But uh, here's how Teresa did it. 
keyboard player and founding member of Bon Jovi, David Bryan, quit the band for a while to study music at Juilliard, which, as I'm sure our listeners, many of our listeners know, is a prestigious school of the arts founded by Frederick Juilliard. Juilliard participated in a 1928 celebratory dinner to honor composer and diplomat Ignace Jan Paderewski. Nicely done. For his role in Poland's independence 10 years earlier. And who was one of the dinner sponsors but William Allen White? Great job, Teresa. So William Allen White sponsored a dinner for Poland's independence. Yeah, that's okay. amazing. He, was he got around. He was and everywhere. I had to say, I think Teresa blew us out of the water on this she one. Did. She, she did. She didn't even have to use the fact that Bon Jovi's mother was a Playboy bunny. <laughs> no. Fun, but unnecessary. Apparently. This is much more dignified in keeping with White's own career. True. All right, now on to the new challenge, which, as you may have guessed, was to connect William Allen White, the uh, famous newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas. Uh, we're connecting him to the British super spy, James Bond. And uh, just a little bit of background on James Bond. He was a fictional character created in 1952 by an author named Ian Fleming. And Fleming, he went on to write, um, I think, like 12 spy spy fiction novels. Um, essentially, Bond is a spy that works for the British intelligence ag agency MI6. And many think that Bond was basically based on the life of Fleming himself, who conducted covert military operations for the British Navy during World War II. And there is, and Fleming was involved in some pretty outrageous schemes um, to, uh, to, to try to inspire the downfall of Nazis. It's pretty crazy stuff. And it's all very Bond-like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Bond as a concept has spun into numerous books and is today the longest-running fr film franchise in history. Now we'll give our solutions, and we'll each give our solution, and I will go first, just because, uh, honestly, I think mine's probably the weakest, but I still think it's fun. Um, in 1997, the film Tomorrow, Di Tomorrow Never Dies was released, and in that film, James Bond tries to stop an evil media mogul, Elliot Carver, from engineering world events and starting World War III. It's possible, so it can happen. <laughs> um, many believe that the character of Elliot Carver was based on another <laughs> evil media mogul, <laughs> Rupert Murdoch. Oh. Murdoch is an Australian-American global media tycoon, along with owning Fox Broadcasting Company, uh, the San Antonio Express News, Star Magazine. In 1976, Murdoch purchased the New York Post, which is probably the crowning jewel in his media empire. Um, interestingly enough, in 1939, William Lindsay White wrote a column for the New York Post entitled Take a Look. And the column, this is interesting, was actually a reprint. Um, it was one of William Lindsay's first columns that he had wrote on, wrote on a regular basis, and he started writing it for the Emporia Gazette, and eventually his dad, William Allen White, convinced his friends at the New York Post to run the article there. So the article was actually reprinted in the New York Post from the Gazette. Wow. So cool. it shows up in Emporia, Kansas, and then goes to New York. <laughs> well, it's good to have a dad in high places. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. So there you go. Ian Fleming to uh, evil media tycoons <laughs> to the New York Post. To William Lindsay White, to William Allen White. So That's my solution. Five degrees? Ah, something like Four that. Four degrees? Yeah. All right, Nikhil, are you going to go for yours? Okay, so my solution, starting with James Bond, um, some people believe that Bond was actually based on another commando during World War II, Patrick Dalzell Job. Um, he was a British naval intelligence officer, and um, Ian Fleming was his commander in the 30th Assault Unit Commando. 
Um, at Normandy, this Dalzell Job um, had an unrestricted authority order signed by Eisenhower to pass through Allied lines and assault German targets. And well, as we know, Eisenhower was golfing buddies with William Lindsay, and William Lindsay was the son of William Allen White. So he had a what? An unrestricted authority order. So pretty much he could go anywhere a little past bit the line. Like a yeah. license to kill to me. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really interesting that so much, there's so many things, um, events in the lives of like Fleming and some of these other people that show up, the terminology shows up in the book. Like um, he bases a lot of these villains off of characters he came into contact with when he was a spy. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting is um, he wrote his first book, Casino Royale, when he was at his Jamaican resort and the name of the Jamaican resort was Goldeneye. Oh. Which later became a movie. And that's also where he got the name James Bond, because that was the author of a book on birds that was in the house. And he thought it was a very masculine-sounding name, which was just what he needed for his spy. All right, Rebecca, you want to give us your solution? Uh-huh. Uh, I'm sorry, I was thinking about Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> you want me to give you... Okay, oh, a solution. Okay, to the connection. Okay, back to reality. Okay, William Allen White had a son, William Lindsay White. William Lindsay White was covering the Blitz, the London Blitz during World War II. Uh, in the Battle of Britain was taking place, or Battle for Britain was taking place in the skies over London. And, of course, instrumental in that battle was the Royal Air Force, the RAF. One of the pilots in the RAF was Roald Dahl, who later wrote the screenplay for You Only Live Twice, the movie. Ah. Wow. James Bond. So it's, you know, five degrees, something like that. Cool. Okay. All right. So now we got the uh, Bond solution nailed down. So let's talk about the next, uh, that's the challenge for the next episode. Nikayla, you want to you wanna issue that? Uh, sure. For the next challenge, we seek peace and tranquility on the other side of the world. We want you to connect William Allen White to the exiled leader of Tibet, the Dalai Lama. So if you think you connect William Allen White to a monk in India, send a message to <laughs> podcast at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. concludes episode 53, Blue Jacket. If you'd like to actually see a jacket worn by a genius, you can by visiting Forces of Nature, an exhibit at the Kansas Historical Society in Topeka, or by going to our website, kshs.org. Did a four-foot plow single-handedly cause the Dust Bowl, arguably the worst environmental disaster in modern history? That's what some say about Charles Angel's innovative rolling disc plow design. Come back in two weeks when museum director Bob Kekeisen takes a look at the machinations of this vilified inventor from Meade County, Kansas. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. But his lies can't disguise what you feel It's the kiss of death from Mr. Goldfinger. <laughs>